chapter 3. And as you're getting there, I have heard this saying before, and I couldn't find out who said it, so we'll just leave it as anonymous. But when God seeks to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. That's a saying that I've heard many times, and it's been attributed to many different people. But when God seeks to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. Now, many of you may think that I'm talking about current-day politics, and that is not the case because if you look at the world, we actually have a lot less wicked of rulers than other nations. So whether God is judging us or not, we can only speculate. But what we can know is that we see how God illustrates this in this passage, that when he seeks to judge a nation like Judah, who is in rebellion against him, he gives them wicked rulers. And we're going to see that today. In fact, not only that, God is going to take help us understand that that leadership will fail. All earthly leadership fails. In fact, not only will leadership fail, but all earthly beauty will fail as well, or fade, if you prefer a gentler term. But it will fail. Beauty and leadership fails. And so God is going to judge the wicked rulers of Judah, but he, he judges the whole nation by judging those rulers. So turn, if you don't have it there, Isaiah chapter 3, and we'll be doing all of chapter 3 in the first verse of chapter 4. So, let's begin with the word of the Lord. Note this, or in your Bible it may say, Behold, the Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security, the entire supply of bread and water, heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, commanders of fifty and dignitaries, counselors, cunning magicians, and necromancers. I will make youths their leaders, and unstable rulers will govern them. The people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old and the worthless, toward the honorable. A man will even seize his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you be our leader. This heap of rubble will be under your control. On that day, he will cry out saying, I'm not a healer. I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because they have spoken and acted against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They are like Sodom. They flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done to them. Youths oppress my people, and women rule over them. My people, your leaders mislead you. They confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings his charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? 
This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. Verse 16, the Lord also says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will strip their finery, ankle bracelets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle jewelry, sashes, perfume bottles, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festive robes, capes, cloaks, purses, garments, linen, cloths, turbans, and shawls. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of beautifully styled hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothes, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. Then her gates will lament and mourn. Deserted, she will sit on the ground. On that day, seven women will seize one man, saying, We will eat our own food, our own bread, and provide our own clothing. Just let us bear your name. Take away our disgrace. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that you are in control. You are in control of the leadership of every nation and every country. You determine who leads and who doesn't. You add and you take away. God, as we read our scripture and we pray today, we pray for wisdom for our rulers, those who are our governors, those who are our presidents. Uh, We pray for them to be wise, to be righteous. Father, we know that you have a plan in all of life's circumstances. God, we lift up your holy name today. We thank you for the fact that we have some freedoms where we can preach your word in a sanctuary that is comfortable. We don't have to worry about the Gestapo or some police organization coming in and arresting us. We can proclaim your name freely. We can share the gospel with our neighbors without fear of earthly punishment. God, we thank you for teaching us such precious truths in your word. Lord, I I lift up this congregation that we would see your glory in this passage, that we would see the one that takes away disgrace, the one that takes away our shame, and the one who strengthens us in times of wickedness. Uh, when we suffer for doing good. Lord, I pray that your word will go forth and proclaim your name to the nations. Lord, we pray that our people would not just keep the information here, but would share it with everyone. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. That's a pretty powerful passage. I don't know about you, but reading through that, that sounds pretty grim. So God has, has determined that wicked leaders are going to rule Judah. And we've been spending a lot of time in Isaiah from chapter 1 all the way to this point. And we've spent a lot of time unpacking the emphasis of Isaiah 1 through 6, which is really the, the failure of pride or the wickedness of our own pride, the things that we rely on, the things we hope and we trust in, things that we turn to instead of the Lord. And idols is a big theme in Isaiah, isn't it? If you read Isaiah, you'll notice that there are idols in your own life that you hold to, that you turn to for comfort, for security, for safety, and God is going to remove them. 
and you will fall on your face. And this is what's happening to Judah. They have relied on their idols. They have turned to false gods, and they are falling on their face. In fact, God is predicting what is going to happen to them very, very soon. I think this is written in the period between King Uzziah's getting struck with leprosy and his death. Because in chapter 6, we see him die. Um, he said, in the year that Isaiah died, I was caught up. And he went to the heavens and he saw God. So Isaiah is talking here. He's predicting what's going to happen to them because King Uzziah became very prideful. He was good at the beginning. He started doing the right things. He, he followed God. But then he got real bold. He got prideful. And he went into the Holy of Holies and decided to offer his own incense. And as he was in the temple, the prophet or the, the priests ran in there and started confronting him, saying, you can't do this. And what does he do? He gets mad. He's like, how dare you tell me what to do? And the minute he got angry, holding the incense all in, in the Holy of Holies, he had leprosy break out on his forehead. And so then the priest grabbed him, and they all pulled him outside because you can't have something unclean in the temple. And they pulled him, and he was isolated from the community the rest of the time. And then his son became the ruler. And I think that is what this begins to refer to. And so verse 1 says, note this. The Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security, the entire supply of bread and water. So he is removing security and he is removing the supply. So security and supply, everything that they have trusted in is going to be removed. And he begins to show us verse or line by line what that looks like. So the first thing that God removes as he begins to judge a nation with wicked rulers is he removes the heroes and the warriors. I think we can all guess what this is referring to. The military strength of Judah and Jerusalem is going to be removed. The heroes and the warriors, those who defend the nation. So he is going to leave them bare, leave them exposed. If our country were to break down and all of our military might were to collapse, we would be left open to conquest by anybody that wanted to come in. And that's what this is referring to. He is going to remove the heroes and the warriors. But not only that, not only the military might of Judah and Jerusalem, which is what they needed in the area that they were, but he also begins to remove judges and prophets. What do you think this is referring to? The judges and the prophets. It's the civil government. The judges were responsible for making sure that court cases were decided properly, that the widows and the orphans would be taken care of. The prophets also had a similar role, but they also had a spiritual component. So the civil and religious aspects of the community are going to be removed in Judah. We see a corruption beginning to happen. Heroes and warriors, the military might, the judges and prophets. So we have mature leaders being replaced with immature leaders as we go forward. Fortune tellers and elders. It's interesting here that Isaiah includes things that were forbidden to the people of God. The people of God are not to be turning to fortune tellers. He says, should not the people of God turn to the one who is their God versus these false gods? But they are turning to false prophets, to false gods, and he's removing that as well. So the fortune tellers and elders, those who provide wisdom, is going to be removed. The commanders of 50 and dignitaries, more governmental figures, are going to be removed. These are the security 
and the supply that they were turning to. Counselors, cunning magicians. Now your passage may have something like skilled craftsmen. The word is very complicated in the Hebrew, and it can refer to either someone who does like magic or someone who is a skilled craftsman. So just know. And then necromancers. Now yours may say mediums. Uh, mediums and necromancers are similar, but um, the Hebrew word also makes it kind of confusing. But those who turn to the dead for information, which is kind of a weird direction for people to turn, but okay. Um, but we see that. Finally, verse 4 really begins to open up. He says, I will make youth their leaders and unstable rulers, or you may have mischief, mischief makers, will govern them. So this is the judgment. He is going to remove the security and the supply from Judah, and he is going to replace it with youth, with um, lack of wisdom. He's going to take wisdom and replace it with lack of wisdom. Now you may be wondering, what in the world has this got to do with me today? We'll get there. Just hang on a little bit longer. He will make youths their leaders. He will, he will basically take the unqualified and place them in the qualified positions. Part of the judgment of a nation is when the leaders are unstable. Verse 5, the people will oppress one another. And now we start to see a breakdown of society. So God judges, he removes away the security that they had, and then he begins to um, let society break down. And this is a breakdown of society. The people will oppress one another. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The one that you live next to, and you kind of have almost a little bit of a covenant, right? We have a fence that keeps us good neighbors. You know, fences make good neighbors. I think that's been said somewhere. And we have a covenant that we work together to uh, keep our community protected. Like my kids are not going to climb into your yard and play in your yard and then come back to mine. Right? We want to have that kind of protection amongst each other. But instead, the neighbor is fighting with the neighbor. The young will act arrogantly towards the old. Instead of uh, causing some reverence for the old, the young people are acting arrogantly and the worthless toward the honorable. And then we see the desperation that arises. In verse 6, it says, A man will even seize his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Now this is the most ridiculous phrase I think I have ever read in recent memory. The qualification for a leader is that you have a cloak. That would be like you guys looking around here and saying, who has a suit? You're the next politician. We're going to make you the president of the United States because you've got a suit on. That's the qualifications that they're looking for for leadership. But not only that, we have some sarcasm, some irony. This heap of rubble will be under your control. This junk, this trash pile is all yours because you have a suit, you have a cloak. And we see the ridiculousness of what happens when society begins to reject their God. When Judah rejects the God of armies, he judges them with wicked rulers. And these wicked rulers then lead to a breakdown in society. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? Verse 7 says, On that day he will cry out. So this, this guy who has been selected for leadership, they've elected him as the president because he had a suit. And they said, you got a suit, you're going to be the president, this is your trash pile. And he says, on that day, he will cry out saying, I am not a healer. Now, why would he say that? 
Well, it goes back to Isaiah chapter 1, where it talks about the wickedness of the people led to their bruising and their sores. And no one was going to bind them up. The dogs were licking their sores. And so he says, I'm not a healer. I can't fix this. There's nothing that I can do to fix it. We are too far gone. This is a hopeless estate. He says, I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. I don't even have this. I can't do it. There's nothing that makes me qualified for this job. You know, it's interesting. Almost every society, you have people jockeying for leadership, whether they're qualified or not. Everywhere you go, whether it be a community chorus to a church service to um, your local 4-H club, someone wants to be in charge. And usually they're not the ones that you want in charge, but somebody wants to be in charge. But in this case, the, Judah has fallen so badly that no one wants to be in charge of the garbage pile. No one wants to deal with Judah because of their wickedness. And then verse 8 tells us why. It says, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. There is complete and utter collapse. The leadership has failed and it is a mess. And why is it? It's because they have spoken and acted against the Lord defying His glorious presence. They have rejected God. They have nothing that they want from God, and so they have fallen on their faces. Verse 9 says, The look on their faces testify against them. They haven't even learned their lesson yet. They are like Sodom. They flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. This is a pretty telling passage about how a, a country goes into ruin. God gives them wicked rulers. Society begins to break down. People continue to reject God. And as they continue to reject God, they fall on their face. In fact, they probably throw some parades about their debauchery. They throw some parades to celebrate their sinfulness. We have a little bit of an application here in 10 and 11, so we're going to skip it and save it for the end. Okay, 10 and 11 is our application. 12 says, The youths oppress my people, and women rule over them. My people, your leaders mislead you. They confuse the direction of your paths. So now these immature or unqualified leaders are leading the people of God in confusing and wrong ways. So these youths that are supposed to be um, leading them take them down the wrong path. And instead of rebelling and, and getting rid of this, this, this wicked leadership, they continue to follow the paths that are directed. What you will not notice is any mention of the king in this passage. Did you Have you seen that yet? There's no mention of the king. So this is all everybody under the king, the governors, the local rulers, the leadership. And that is because Uzziah is absent and his son is taking charge. And we know what happens with his son. Verse 13 through 15 is sort of a reminder that this is a court case. God is making his charge against the people of Judah who have rebelled against them. It says the Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people 
It says, you have devastated the vineyard. The job, the one job the people, the leadership of the people of God had is to cultivate the vineyard. The vineyard is often referred to as Israel, um, Jerusalem sometimes as well. But ultimately, the people of God are to, to have leaders who cultivate their growth. Right, that's the vineyard imagery. When you have a vine, you make sure it has is fed, it has water, it has good uh, soil, and you trim it, and you cut out the dead, and you leave the good, and and you build up this vine. But ultimately, instead of taking care of the vineyard, the people, the leaders are fleecing the sheep. The leaders are taking the wine for themselves. They're eating the grapes off the vine instead of cultivating it. They are destroying what they should be preserving. And so this is a, a charge against leaders who seek to gain advantage by being a leader. He says, the plunder from the poor is in your houses. These leaders are not satisfied with what they have. They want to go into the houses of the poor and take the one couch that they own. They want to take the one four-inch TV that they have. They want to go in there. They want to steal the stuff. They take the, 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 the cereal from the infants in the poor house and they give it to themselves and they live in lavish mansions. They plunder the poor. This is an indictment against the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. And then God asks a question, Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Now you'll notice that verse 3 began with the Lord of armies, and it ends on 15 with the Lord of armies. And that gives us a little bit of a section and what we see is that there's a failure of leadership in the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So what does that do have to do with us today? How do we live when our rulers are not as honorable as they should be? Now, remember what I said. I said, I don't think that we have the worst leaders possible. You know what they say about democracy. It's the worst system of government except for all the others, right? It is the worst system of government except for all the others. Because the other ones are um, her worse, let's just be honest. And so democracy is difficult, and we have leaders who take advantage of us. We have leaders who make wicked policies, but it could be much worse. And so that's the first thing we should notice. But verse 10 tells us that the righteous tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Now, is this a promise that if you do the right thing, you won't have bad things happen to you. Is that what's being said here? Are we going to claim this promise and write it on our mirrors and so we can just make this happen? No, ultimately what this is saying is if you are in right standing with God long term, because when you, when you labor, you will eat the fruit of your labor. So what that's saying is long term, ultimately, if you live righteously, it will go well for you. And that could be in this life or it could be the next. This is not a promise that this is going to happen if you, um, if you are right before God, you go to church every Sunday and, and you know, put on a happy face that you're going to go well. But this is saying that it will go well long term for you. So we have the warning that woe to the wicked for it will go badly for them for what they have done will be done to them. This is an ultimate reality. There's going to be a future judgment. And we will stand before God eating the fruit of our labors. Do we turn to Christ or do we turn away from him is ultimately the question. So we have that. So how do we live when there are wicked rulers? Well, we, are, we need to be righteous. 
We need to seek after justice. We need to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That is what we're instructed to do. So if the government decides to ban Christianity, what are we required to do? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. If the government says we can't go to church, what are we supposed to do? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. It's very simple. This is not complicated. We can sit here and watch the news all day long and get worried about what's going to happen next. What's going to, but it's, all this is going to do is make us more anxious and more nervous. We're not going to grow spiritually by watching the news. And we're not seeking righteousness. The righteousness or the anger of man does not produce righteousness of God. And so we need to seek after the Lord in wicked leadership. Okay, pretty simple, I think. The second thing is we can praise God. So God is the one who gives us leadership. He gives us good leaders and he gives us bad leaders. Our responsibility is to praise him for what he has given us. How often do we thank God that we have some form of government? Because if you go to some place like Afghanistan, would you want to live under that level of government? Or Iraq, when Saddam Hussein was the president, or whatever he was calling himself. Would you want to live in that world? No, so why do we, who, has been given, who have been given so much for blessings of government, fail to thank the Lord for the blessing? We could be living in North Korea right now. We could be living in another place. Instead, we are ungrateful, aren't we? How often do we complain more than we thank God for what He has given us? How often do we complain about this or that? Or, you know, in my case, and I, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the rest of you, driving by the gas station and looking at the prices go up every single day. How, how tempted am I to complain when there are countries who can't even get gas or people have to stand in line for gas? There's a tendency to that. And so instead, I need to be thankful. I need to be grateful for what the Lord has given me and the place that he has placed us. But not only that, beauty fails. So God has shown that leadership will fail, and our responsibility is to remain in His hands. And in fact, we need to be righteous. We need to pursue Him um, so we can eat the fruit of the labor. But also, beauty fails. So in verse 16, the Lord also said, or says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty. Now, this is interesting because if you are a man, you're like, okay, I can check out now. This is all about the women. It's the women's fault, right? No, that's not what this is saying. They're saying that Zion is represented by her daughters. And this, this is what the whole city is guilty of. And so it says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're they're proud. They're proud of their beauty. It says they walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes prancing along jingling their ankle bracelets. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not super attractive to me. Jingling of ankle bracelets, I don't really get it. But for the Hebrews, that was a symbol of beauty, of attractiveness, um, of something that they would want to pursue in a woman um, if she has ankle bracelets. 17, the Lord will put scabs on their heads. So God begins to strip away the beauty. What we think is beautiful, things we put our pride in, our, 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 we put our pride in, what we have pride of, such as our fitness or our intellect or 
what have you. Maybe even in our jewelry or our, our fancy mansions, whatever you have, the Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughters of Zion. What they were once proud, the head that they held high is going to have scabs on it. Sores all over their heads. And he will shave their foreheads bare. Imagine having a woman who has the first part of her, top of her head shaved off. All the hair that she is uh, thankful for, grateful for, removed, shaved bare. God will lower the pride of humanity. Beauty will fail. Earthly beauty is stripped away. Verse 18 gives us kind of like a similarity to verse 2, where in verse 2 you have heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders. In verse 18, you have ankle bracelets and headbands and crescents and pendants and bracelets and veils, right? It's a similar flow. If you read this in the Hebrew, you would catch the connection. It's almost like a poetic parallelism. So not only does the, 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 the political system fail you, but also the, the money and the beauty and the things that you put hope in, everything is going to be wiped out. Um, signet rings and nose rings, festive robes, capes, clothes, purses, garments, linen clothes, turbans, and shawls. I'm not going to unpack that. I think you get the picture. Everything that is considered beautiful at this time is going to be stripped away. That's very violent language, ripped off of them. And then he begins to exchange their beauty for shame. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. In a time when people didn't take a lot of baths, perfume was necessary. And so when they run out of perfume, they're going to have stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. They're so poor they can't even afford a belt, they have to use a rope. I don't know why, but that just makes me think of, never mind, I'm not going to go into that. But instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of beautifully styled hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothes, sackcloth. How many of you saw the kids doing the uh, potato sack races? That would be like what they would be wearing, those kind of burlaps. Um, they would just cut a little head hole in there and drop it on them. That would be what you would wear instead of fine clothing. Instead of beauty, branding. Your, your passage may say shame, but branding and shame are, are similar um, in the Hebrew. You have this beauty, or uh, uh, instead of beauty, branding. And then we have this interesting kind of break in our story. 25 and 26 begin to talk about your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. This is reminding us of the reliance on the men to be providers in the home uh, back in those days. In fact, it says, your warriors in battle, then her gates will lament and mourn, deserted. She will sit on the ground. On that day, seven women will seize one man. This is a reference to the fact that one out of se seven men will survive. That's how badly devastated Judah and Jerusalem is about to be. There's only going to be one out of seven who survives. One out of seven men will survive this coming judgment on them. And so because there's only one man out of seven, the women will gather around and try to get one man to host them. One man to give them their name or his name so that they can have some kind of standing in society. Because you remember unmarried women 
didn't have really a lot of rights in the time of Judah that this is being written in. And he said, and the women say to him, we will eat our own bread and provide our own clothing. Just let us bear your name. Because the whole system, all society has been flipped on its head. Now the women are going to be providing their own stuff because men cannot provide. We're going to have youths for leaders instead of mature people for leaders. They're going to have neighbors against neighbors instead of peace among neighbors. Man against man. The worthless against the honorable. The young versus the old. Everything in society is flipped on its head due to this judgment. And the cry of all the people is going to be the last part of chapter 1, verse 1. Take away our disgrace. This, is all, this whole thing is about shame and disgrace. That they are no longer going to be proud of what they wear. Their beauty is going to be replaced with shame, with um, shaved heads, with scabs and scars on their faces and their bodies. They're not going to be able to afford any clothing. They're going to be basically um, destitute. So who can take away disgrace? Well, you'll have to come back next Sunday to find out who fully unpacked because I was very tempted to preach the rest of chapter 4, but I realized we don't have the time for that. Chapter 4 points us to who replaced shame and embarrassment. But I am going to give you a preview, so don't pack up your Bibles just yet, Mom. Didn't mean to call you out there. Isaiah 53, verse 4, begins to tell us who is going to take away our disgrace. Verse 4 says, He Himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded Him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Who is, who, who's this him that he's talking about? Jesus. It's very clear. So who takes away our disgrace? Jesus. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about our sins being taken away. But what about our shame? Are you embarrassed about the things that you've done? Are you embarrassed about the sins that you have committed? Do you still hold on to those things that you did last night, yesterday, last week, and that shame is eating at your heart? Jesus takes our shame. He doesn't just take our sins. He takes the consequences of our sins. You can exchange the shame that you have for His glory. You can take the, the, the sins that you have and place them on Him because He has taken them on Himself. He says He was pierced because of our rebellion. He did not rebel. He was perfect. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him. And we are healed by His wounds. Who's the healer in the story? Jesus. Who's the one that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus. We all, like sheep, went astray. We have turned our own way. The Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. If you are holding on to shame 
and embarrassment and, and, and guilt, give it to Jesus. That's, that's what this is talking about here. He says, the people of Judah and Jerusalem don't have to have their shame before their face forever because God is preparing a way to remove it. Next week, we're going to see exactly how he did that by using this branch analogy. But we have the gospel here in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Listen to this. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. If you do not know this Jesus, if you do not have a relationship with him, now's the time to get right with God. You do not have to bear the shame and the guilt of your sins. You can turn to him today. If you don't have that relationship, me or one of the elders would be happy to talk to him. We're going to take a moment and of, um, of prayer here as we close. And I want you to just to sit here and deal with your conscience and your heart before God. Maybe you need to repent of your lack of gratitude for the government that God has placed you under. Maybe you need to repent of your complaints. Maybe you need to take something, maybe you have guilt and shame that you haven't dealt with, that the Lord would be happy to take, that you don't have to live with it. We're going to spend a few minutes dealing with our own hearts as we close in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are. We are thankful for Christ who came and suffered for us. Lord, we don't have to live with the guilt and the shame of what was done to us or what we've done. Father, there are those in this room who have suffered incredibly under the wickedness of human beings. Yet you promised to take away guilt and shame. Lord, we, uh, we lift you up today. Lord, we, we repent of our lack of gratitude for the system of government you've placed us under. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as to how to engage with our government, uh, whether we need to step up and serve in some political capacity, or whether we need to do justice and love those who are oppressed today. God, give us wisdom. Lord, as we take a few moments to deal with our heart, I pray that you move in everyone's heart today. Give us wisdom as we take this moment of silence.
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we know that in 1 John 1.9 it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we know that we can be assured of the forgiveness of sins by Your promises. Forgive us of our sins. Take away our shame and our guilt. Help us to live in light of Your glorious truth. Lord, help us to be a people of the book. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.